calendar's rolled over to September, the nights are getting cooler and the trees are starting to turn. What does that mean? Fall fishing is right around the corner and we're going to talk about that and more on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey guys, Chad Lachance here. Thanks for joining us once again for this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. It is one of my favorite seasons. We are going into fall, and I am a spring and fall-based guy. Love summertime, enjoy hunting in the winter, but at the end of the day, spring and fall are my two favorite seasons. They're the transition seasons. Seems like the most is going on with Mother Nature and the universe in general at that time of year. And uh, and to be honest with you, I get a little bit torn as to whether or not to put the guns in the truck and go hunting or the rods in the truck and go fishing. It's that time of year, and it's fantastic. But the thing about fall fishing that you have to keep in mind, everyone gets giddy and says, oh, it's fall, fish are finally going to bite, and da-da-da-da-da. Well, yeah, they will, but you still got to have an open mind about where you're fishing and how you're fishing and... You know, that's kind of what we want to talk about on this whole whole episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. And as with most of my podcasts, this one's going to be uh, very much multi-species oriented because that's the kind of fishing we do on Fishful Thinker television, on Altitude Sports and World Fishing Network. It's what you'll find on our YouTube channel at Fishful Thinker, and it's what I enjoy doing. And even as a guide, we guide for smallmouth and largemouth bass, walleyes, uh, and trophy trout, occasionally some crappies or or uh, other panfish, but for the most part, it's bass, walleyes, and trophy trout, and all of those fish bite very well in the fall of the year, and depending on where you're listening from, it may be more or less fall uh, here in northern Colorado where I'm at, starting to see some gold on the cottonwoods, and uh, for sure the the evenings are cooling, like I said, there in the open. I sleep outside every night. It's a weird quirk I have, but if the weather's decent, I sleep outside under the stars every single night, and it basically just keeps me in touch with the seasons and everything. It keeps uh, keeps me feeling like I'm in tune with Mother Nature. The only time I sleep indoors is when uh, the, when the weather's inclement because I don't have a shelter over the area I sleep. So if it's going to rain, I don't stay outside. Otherwise, I'm out there. And I can tell you right now, the last few nights, it's been noticeably cooler uh, as we head into the fall season. So the other thing that's important about it, and this is one of the telltale signs of the fall season starting to come in in whatever fisheries you fish, if you're someone that keeps track of the water temperatures, uh, once your water temperatures have turned, in other words, they quit warming and they've started for the first time to be a couple of degrees cooler, one or two degrees is all it'll take uh, to cooler consistently, then what you'll find is your fish are very much going to start working towards the fall, uh, fall patterns, fall bites, and that doesn't matter, again, if they're trout or walleyes or whatever. Uh, the one good thing that's important to keep in mind about all of the transition seasons, it doesn't matter what seasonal transition we're looking at, I'm of the opinion that the largest fish or the most mature game uh, are the first ones to figure out the seasonal patterns and will lead the charge. And what I mean by that is the largest, most uh, mature fish in your system will be the first ones to sense the coming change and start moving towards whatever it is that they do in the fall of the year. So, if you're talking about fish that spawn in the fall, like maybe a brown trout or a lake trout, uh, brook trout, things like that, they are for sure the biggest ones are, are going to be the ones that will start moving towards their spawning process, and the smaller fish will bring in behind them. 
Uh, if you're talking about fish moving to the feeding binge, same thing. Uh, they're going to start feeding. The, the biggest ones will sense that change, move to whatever it is they're going to feed, and start going first. And the operative term in the fall of the year is hyperphagia. It's one of my favorite terms. Um, it's what makes bears get out and be so active this time of year. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is constantly issuing warnings about dumpster diving bears at this time of year. If you want to stay out of trouble with the bears, you put your food away. That includes bird feeders, things like that. Uh, that's because bears are very much in their hyperphagia stage where they are trying to gain as much body weight as they can as prior to going into wintertime. And basically so does every other fish and game in the ecosystem. Uh, the does are fattening up from having babies all summer. They start weaning their babies. They start fattening up. Uh, you know, no different. It's just the whole ecosystem is knows fully that we're going into the wintertime and everybody needs to be prepared for it. So along the lines of hyperphagia, the old book will tell you, the fishing book will tell you, find the bait and find the fish. And I'm a strong believer in you find your food by finding your food's food in a lot of cases. And I'm preparing to leave for a bear hunt, uh, black bear hunt here in the next day or so. And my entire bear hunt is going to revolve around berry patches. I'm not even worried about where there's bears. I'm concerned about where there's berries because where there's berries, the bears will eventually be. Well, where there's bait, the fish will eventually be as well. And that sounds easy. You say, oh, well, find the bait and find the fish. So all I have to do is go out and find the bait. Well, the million dollar question is what bait? And that doesn't seem, you know, it's, it, that seems like an obvious thing, but it's, it's not. It's lost on lots of anglers. My home lake, Horsetooth Reservoir here in northern Colorado, is famous for its smelt population. We have rainbow smelt, and that's what gets all the headlines for bait. And that's great, but I've done a lot of sampling here with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and one thing I can tell you is that uh, you cannot count on the fact that smelt are always the primary food source. We've pulled nets with walleyes in them and found gill nets I'm talking about that were left overnight and fish swim into them. You find one walleye in the net that's got a whole belly full of smelt, and the next walleye in the net's got a whole belly full of crayfish, and the next one's got a few shad in it, and the one after that's got one big rainbow trout that's you know eight inches long that Parks My Life just dumped in here, and maybe the one after that's got a couple of yellow perch in it. So at the end of the day, finding the bait is a little bit of an over oversimplification. Now, there are some scenarios where you might have less than one food source, but that's rare, and if it is, you have a very sketchy fishery because... Almost any fishery is going to have multiple food sources, even if that means the bluegills are a primary food source for some of the bass or the fathead minnows or even the ones you might not think about like chronomids or hexagenia mayflies or any of the bugs that can form a primary food source for any of these fish. So finding the bait is a little bit of a stretch. So what I advocate is finding some bait that is best suited to angling around because not all the fish are on any one food source at any given time. So might as well fish the food source that is most easy for me to deal with. So in my lake, um, the smelt are only easy to deal with as a food source when they come high in the water column early and late in the day. They're crepuscular feeders. That's a big word. That means they come up in low light periods to feed. They spend the rest of the day down around the thermocline, and maybe my fish don't want to be 40 feet deep uh, with 
you know, down, down deep where the smelts stay. But in the evening time, those smelt will come up high in the water column, and then they're accessible to bait fish, or excuse me, to, uh, to predatory fish, and, and that's great. But the rest of the day, all the walleyes and the bass and the trout have easier access to lots of other things to eat, and they're easier for me to fish around. So maybe, just maybe, I'm going to go fish areas where I know that I'm going to have a good opportunity of being a, a good number of crayfish, uh, because crayfish are easy to emulate. You know where they are in the water column because they're always on the bottom. You know they're going to be around areas of mud and rock together most commonly more than they are pure rock or certainly pure mud. Um, they seem to be, at least in Horsetooth Reservoir, in areas where the mud and the rock come together. Uh, and that's an area you find a lot of crayfish. So maybe I need to go drag some sort of a crayfish imitator around and catch fish that way because I'll have a percentage of my fish that are feeding around crayfish. Another possibility might be the shad. And the shad, particularly in the fall of the year, are much easier to locate than the smelt because you will see them on the surface. And, and at this point in the last few days, I've started to see some small shad that are getting run up on the banks, on really flat banks. They're young of the year shad. They're somewhere around one to two inches long. And there are smallmouth running them up on the banks uh, and, and plundering them, almost, uh, almost boil style. And that will get more and more prevalent as the lake continues to cool. Uh, you'll see more and more fish pushing those shad up on the bank. Incidentally, once the surface temperature drops down to mid-60s range, we're, we're hovering around right around 71, 72. If it drops into the mid-60s or a little lower, you're going to start seeing trout run those same uh, shad up on the bank or catching them in open water, high in the water column. But the shad are easy to find because the birds will show them to you. If you have white bass in your fishery, they will for sure show them to you as they're pushing them to the surface. Uh, they're easy just in general to find on your sonar units as well. So shad are a really good bait source in the fall, and they're very common all around uh, you know, the United States. You can find shad. The thing about shad, too, is uh, typically they will, they will have fish that will follow them, a whole mix of fish that will follow them because they roam constantly. I had a couple of shad in a fish tank. I had three of them in a fish tank, a 125-gallon tank one time. Uh, I caught them in some, a lake that was dropping really quickly in water level. They got stuck in a puddle, and I was able to catch live shad without hurting them. Uh, and shad are extremely fragile, so if you net them, they, they don't do well in a lot of cases. But at any rate, I put three of them in a fish tank, and one thing I can tell you about them is they never stop swimming. They swim constantly. They will swim figure eights or laps or whatever up and down and around and around the fish tank constantly. Even in a 125-gallon tank, they never stopped. For the year and a half I had them, they swam the entire time until they died. So, And just for the record, all three of them died within a week, uh, but the rest of the fish tank was fine. So I don't know if they just ran their lifespan out or what happened, but they swim constantly. And that should tell you something about fishing around shad is just because they're here right this minute doesn't mean they will be. And in a lot of cases, they'll push away from your boat or your sonar or your trolling motors, as the case might be, uh, and they'll move away from you as you fish. But keeping track of those shad can be really key. But shad are a really important uh, bait source in the fall, and it may come down to what size of shad they're feeding on. Uh, we did some sampling at another lake here in town, caught a couple of gigantic walleyes in a net with Parks and Wildlife, like 15-pounders. The bait source they were on were six to seven inch shad, in other words, two year old gizzard shad, and they're feeding on a completely different year class of shad, which is doing different things than the smaller shad. So, 
that's another another variable in your bait thing is what what year class of that bait are they feeding on because the six inch shad and the 12 inch shad do different stuff than the two inch shad and gizzard shad live three years on average that's their deal they'll die at the, the once they get three years old they'll die on a, on a hard cold snap and you'll start to see them flutter down but that goes into more winter fishing than uh than fall fishing so right now what size of shad am i looking for it can be a key thing if you're a fly fisherman or you just happen to be fishing uh, in areas where there's there's lush weed beds, um, trout trout areas commonly, the elodia grass that you find in a lot of the ponds around town, they will have some significant bug hatches as well. And those bug hatches can be a great source of the food chain for you in the fall of the year. So watching for significant bug hatches, even if you're not a fly fisherman, when you're seeing a bunch of mayflies or a, or a bunch of, of some sort of, of bugs coming off, you can keep in mind that either the bluegills and pumpkin seeds and all those may be feeding on them, the shad themselves may be feeding on them, uh, you know, you just don't know. But I can tell you that if there are significant bugs coming off, somebody will be feeding on them and that will get the food chain going on. So keeping track of that can be really important as well. So when we're looking for the bait, we might be looking for the insects, which will draw the bait, which will then draw the fish we're desiring to catch. Uh, another possible bait source in the fall that a lot of people don't really think about is eggs, trout eggs particularly. Um, brown trout are fall feeder or fall spawners. Brook trout, as I already mentioned, fall spawners. When they start doing their thing and they start dropping eggs, you can count on the fact that the rainbow trout are going to come in there and do whatever they can to eat those eggs. Now, lest you feel bad for the brown trout, the browns will do the same thing to the rainbows in the spring of the year, so it, it comes and goes as far as that goes. But understand that those eggs can be a major, major food source. So one of my favorite places to fish in the fall is uh, in North Park, Colorado, because of the browns. There's a lot of brown trout in some of those lakes. And they're, they're kind of prairie pothole-style lakes. They're just um, they're flat and they're weedy and they're extremely uh, lush ecosystems because of the weed growth that, that lives in them. The, the insects and all that go really good. The growth rates of the trout are crazy. But when those brown trout start dropping eggs here in the next month or next three weeks to you know month from now, this, the rainbow trout will forget there was a bug even in that lake and concentrate heavily on eating those brown trout eggs. And they become very easy to catch. All you have to do is fish very aggressively until you locate the browns and then get small baits on the bottom underneath them and you will pick up the rainbows. And the beauty of the situation is the rainbows in those lakes on average are larger than the browns in those lakes. So the brown trout are your indicator. They're the ones that are dropping the bait, so to speak, and, uh, and the rainbows are following them. So typically in a scenario like that, I'll run something like a jerkbait around or a streamer fly to locate the browns. And then I will fish under them or just slightly deeper than them uh, with something small to attract the rainbows. Typically, in my, in my world, that's going to go down to a tube jig, a small tube jig. Um, they're opportunistic feeders, so as long as you're getting around, around the bait uh, you're going and, and presenting something more or less edible, you will catch some of them. You don't have to be fishing with an egg pattern just because the rainbow trout are fishing, or eating eggs, I should say, you just need to make sure that your bait is in the same area that they are feeding 
and looks more or less edible and in the same basic size range. So a small tube jig around the eggs is fine and has worked extremely well for me over the years. Uh, as long as you fish a bait that's moving, a hard bait, uh, anything higher in the water column, you only catch browns. You get under those browns, you will catch rainbows. And it's a really, really neat trick uh, to be able to do. Along those same lines, um, the only reason I care what my fish are feeding on is so that I know where they're feeding. I am not a match-the-hatch guy in general. It's not my MO. A lot of people are. I fully get it. But I think that there are other ways to get fish to bite a lot of times easier as long as you're getting a bait in front of those fish. So... Uh, you know, if I know where the shad are, that doesn't mean I necessarily need to be fishing with a shad style bait. I might fish with a long skinny jerk bait that has a completely different profile and everything else than a shad. But what I'm doing is giving my fish something to attack. So one of my favorite things ever is to, when I can get around schools of shad that are really dense, is to throw right in the middle of the school and run a jerk bait into the middle of them hard, jerking it hard and fast, just a real erratic crisp, duke, 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 jerk it into the school of shad. When those shads scatter away from your bait, which they will invariably do, you kill it immediately and just stall your bait right there. And your bait becomes, your jerk bait becomes a proverbial sitting duck and is a great way to generate bites from fish that are feeding in and around those shad. Great fall pattern, something I do a lot of. Same thing with bait fish that are maybe more structure oriented. For instance, the smelt in my lake on deep structure will push up against the structure 35, 40 feet down. I can rip a blade bait, something like a, a thin fisher, into those smelt off the bottom and rip it hard off the bottom and it will scatter the smelt and then bam, as soon as that thing stalls at the top of its, of its rip and starts for the bottom, you'll get bit. And again, it's not even close to the same profile or size as the smelt they're feeding on. The smelt are anywhere between four and seven inches long. They're built like little barracudas. They're long and skinny. That blade bait's short and stubby and fat, but it represents a feeding opportunity around the bait. And that hyperphagia term, that fall feeding binge, means that, hey, we're going to eat whatever we can catch. Uh, we're going to go where the most amount of bait is, uh, but we're going to eat whatever we can catch when we get there. And that can be an important thing to keep in mind as well. Same kind of thing about really small bait uh, where maybe bluegills are in and feeding. You know, you'll see a lot of suspended bluegills this time of year on deep weed beds or in, in, on rocky lakes. They'll be suspended over deep structure. They're feeding on very small, something very small when they're there. But the predatory fish will come in and eat them. And that can be uh, a, great, a great combo for you is to locate the bluegills and then fish around them. Use something small to catch the bluegills to figure out what's going on or mark them on your graph. They will stack vertically uh, and then fish around them with some other baits. But the, the, uh, the concept of the food chain in general is the part that, that really needs to be, to, to be kept track of more than you know, the specific bait itself. I will say there's a couple of generalities um, that I will that I will pay attention to when fishing in the fall. First of all, I like to fish um, in the fall more often than not. I'm going to fish flatter banks than steeper banks, and that goes for walleyes or bass. Um, 
I like to fish areas that are um, diverse, let's just say, and not any one species of fish like it. So I'm not going to fish stuff that is only bass cover, that's only walleye cover. I'm going to try to fish stuff that's all of the above. If I can find a big flat with a channel swing in it, I know that I can do well fishing around that channel swing because some sort of bait will be in and around it or in that channel itself, uh, whether it be the shad or the smelt or, or crayfish in the channel or whatever, that's a really important thing. Another key that's uh, a, it's a common scenario that you run into in fall fishing is either low or falling water. And if you're a Western angler, you're very familiar with that. Uh, particularly in, you know, my home lake right now is dropping like four to six inches per day. So you're losing a tremendous amount of water. And what that does is it gets things like crayfish that live on the bottom on the march because they are constantly having to move down the bank with the water level and then reset up every night and do what crayfish do in the dark and then move down a little bit more. And they do that constantly and it makes them accessible to other fish because they have to move more and more. So when you start dealing with that low water or falling water scenario, any sort of offshore cover or structure that has bait on it is going to be more important than, uh, than anything else. The flat banks that I mentioned a minute ago are only good if they have a channel or some sort of deep water access right near them. Otherwise, the fish are going to stay off of those flat banks. Same kind of thing in the river. The rivers get to be low and clear and everybody's hungry and everybody wants to eat, but the water's really low and clear. So the first deep water at the tail end of riffles can be really good. Um, you can also count on the fact in the river that if there are bait fish of any sort available, i.e. sculpin or mountain whitefish or any sort of minnows or potentially even baby trout or fingerlings that were stocked. Colorado Parks and Wildlife typically stocks uh, fingerlings in the spring and fall. If they're stocking that stuff, uh, any of the fish in that system will turn into more uh, pishkabores. They will be eating fish more in the fall of the year than they will any of the rest of the time because there's, first of all, there's more of it available. All the young of the year that was born uh, is now hitting the size that's really good to eat for one. And for two, the fish themselves are putting the feed bag on, and so they're looking for as big a calories as they can get, and they can eat, you know, 10 little mayflies, or they can eat one four-inch mountain whitefish and get 10 times the calories. And if you think a four-inch mountain whitefish is too big for a trout, uh, you would be incorrect in that. We worked with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, a uh, guy by the name of John Ewart, and he told us, basically showed us, that their data proved in the Colorado River that once the brown trout particularly were over 20 inches long, they were almost 100% pishkivores. And they're only 20 inches long, but they're eating typically sculpin. And those sculpin are anywhere from two and a half to five inches long. So it's a big bait. That's what they eat day in and day out. They also eat the little subcatchable three to five inch rainbow trout. So if you picture a 20, 21 inch brown trout with a five inch you know, rainbow in his belly or in his, in his gullet, then think again about how, how your bait is too big. And in the fall of the year in a river, for me, that's almost always going to be a great big jerk bait. Uh, big, I mean, like way bigger than you would normally think of for, for fishing in a river or a great big streamer. And that thing's going, in both cases, it's going to be very fast because these days I don't, I, I fish for the biggest fish as I can catch period. I'm not, uh, I don't, 
I'm willing to get skunked in, in the effort of chasing big fish. And a great big, very fast-moving bait in the fall of the year in a river is a fantastic way to catch some of the biggest fish in there. Same thing with a big tube jig tight to the bottom. Uh, again, you're mimicking a big food source, a crayfish, uh, a whitefish, or sculpin. The sculpin doesn't even have a swim bladder, so he doesn't leave the bottom at all. He stays on the bottom, and the crayfish also, obviously, doesn't swim around a whole bunch, so uh, stays on the bottom. So the big tube jig on the bottom can be a really good call for, for something like that as well. Um, the other thing that I like to do in the fall is take advantage of surface commotion, switch gears uh, a little bit. Surface commotion, meaning that um, it, basically it's a feeding opportunity for anything. Now, here's one you're, somebody's going to call BS on me on this, but I'm going to challenge you to go try it. Get a small to average size surface popper, like a little pop bar, a bullet pop 60, um, you know, some sort of a little small popper that's in the 60 millimeter range. Uh, fish that very fast across current over some of your favorite runs in the fall of the year, and you will be shocked at how many trout will come up and blast that thing like it owes them money. I mean, just absolutely nuclear strikes because the fish are giddy. They want to eat. It's getting cool. The water temperatures are cool. Dissolved, dissolved oxygen levels are good, and it's clear, and that's the key. The water is very clear, and so surface commotion is a fantastic way to get bites. A surface popper on a, on a trout river is a fantastic way to get bites. Uh, same thing with a little small buzz bait or a little Chapo 75. Great way to get bites. Same thing on a lake uh, for ba any of the bass species or white bass or stripers, uh, wipers, anything along those lines. A walking bait like a drift walker or a jaywalker or a Zara Spook style bait some sort or a Chapo style bait, uh, you know, like a plopper style with the asymmetrical rotor on the back, um, just moving that thing along. Any areas that you've got any sort of bait fish or fish activity, even just bug activity, uh, will be a great potential to draw bass up to the surface that may not otherwise be feeding on the surface because, again, it's that surface commotion. It's a big bite. The water tends to be clear in the fall on a lot of reservoirs until at least till they turn over. And that surface commotion is a great way to get bites uh, by doing that. And again, they may not, may not be any obvious signs that fish are feeding on the surface. I'll fish around bait fish. I'll fish around uh, hatching insects, uh, anything like that. And, uh, and that will be my general MO. But typically in the fall, it's going to be a walking bait or a buzz bait or a chapo style bait, uh, not a popper in the, on standing water. Now, in the river, different story. It's very hard to get a walking bait to work correctly in the river. Uh, the little small chapo will work in the river, as will uh, the surface popper. Walking bait doesn't do well in current is the thing. So uh, otherwise, I'm sure you could catch trout with it there as well. Incidentally, when lake trout get up real shallow in the fall, uh, they will for sure grab a topwater bait uh, when they're up thinking about spawning. They'll also grab a swim bait that's right underneath the surface. And I'm not advocating fishing for lake trout right on their spawn, but as they come in to spawn and they're on that pre-spawn feed and they get up in the shallow water in you know, late September, October, when the water's cooled down, uh, you're going to have a great opportunity to catch some of them with a topwater bait or a bait running just under the surface can be really cool. The last bait I'll throw out there for bass and walleye guys, it's very similar to topwater bait, would be a wake bait. I love wake baits in early spring and late fall um, or 
mid-spring and mid-fall, uh, wake bait running just under the surface and bulging a bunch of wake as it goes across. There's a great way to draw strikes from fish that are really feeding up and, uh, and really getting after, you know, the feed bag so that they can be fat for winter. And you can't stay fat if you don't eat. And they know they need to stay fat in the winter, so they will eat as much as they can. So, yes, find the bait in the fall, but... Keep an open mind as to what constitutes the bait. Uh, don't be afraid to fish larger than average lures. Fish aggressively in the fall. Make the fish force you to slow down. I will always fish very aggressively in the beginning of the, uh, to, to make, if the fish won't give me some positive reinforcement, then I will slow down and turn into more finesse-oriented stuff. But as the water cools, I will fish more and more aggressive until it gets below the comfort level of whatever species I'm fishing for. So, when it drops into, say, the 50s range, lower 50s range, I know my bass are going to slow down. My trout will still be completely giddy. My walleyes will be doing fine in the mid-50s, whereas, you know, the largemouth are starting to get sluggish. So keep in mind that water temperature is relevant to whatever species you're fishing for, and that, uh, that will be important as well. So I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of Fishful Thinker. Uh, we... Strive always to bring you some useful information. Try to keep it as wide-ranging as possible to appeal as many of you as you can. Our YouTube channel is built that same way. There's more than 500 videos there. That's at Fishful Thinker. You can join the conversation on social media at Fishful Thinker on Facebook and Instagram. And, of course, catch us every week on Altitude Sports and Entertainment and World Fishing Network. And uh, we would definitely appreciate you doing that. It's a labor of love, and we always try to educate and help you guys catch more fish. So thanks for listening. This has been Fishful Thinker, the podcast.